This is the Race Like a Girl podcast, where you always get a one-of-a-kind RC talk experience from the female perspective. Our motto is to always strive to beat the guys. So without further ado, here are your nitro-burning, four-wheel drive-turning hosts, Katie Carmendi and Mackenzie Harvick. Welcome to the next episode of Race Like a Girl. We've got a good episode for you here today. So the first person that we want to welcome back on the show is Mackenzie. So hey, Mackenzie. Hey, Katie. And the other person that we want to welcome on the show is Jimmy Babcock. So hey, Mr. Babcock, how's it going? Good. How are you, ladies? So for those of you who don't know who Mr. Babcock is, Mr. Babcock is an RC legend for many different reasons. One of them is his time as a pro driver, and then now in his later careers, he does so many things for the hobby still, whether it's track owner, track director, race director, race promoter, or hobby shop owner. He's still very involved in RC and races sometimes himself. Um, How Mackenzie and I are connected to him is because he's just very supportive of girls in the hobby, and he's always telling us that we are doing a good job no matter what event that we are at, so we appreciate him for that. So the first question that we have for you today is just kind of what got you started in RC racing, and how did this all become a career for you? Well, for me, it started back in uh, in high school. I was actually, well, compared to nowadays, I was a late bloomer. I didn't start until I was 17. I know a lot of uh, a lot of the up-and-comers now get an early start, but I was a late bloomer, and uh, um, I didn't even know what an RC car was, and I was actually in auto shop um, with my buddy Keith, and uh, we were changing the oil on his car, and uh, I happened to notice uh, his RC car in the uh, back seat and uh, I asked him what it was because I had never seen it before and he said oh that's my car we go to this track down the road every Tuesday night it happened to be a Tuesday Tuesday that day and uh, he brought me to the local track here and the rest is history I've been here pretty much ever since I fell in love with it the moment I I I saw him going around the track for the first time and it was uh, unlike anything I've ever seen and you know I've been into you know different forms of racing um, you know in my, you know, my childhood BMX go-karts, but, uh, this was something I can do that was local and a little bit more, uh, affordable than those others. That's great. So what was your first RC car? It actually was what a lot of people's first RC cars were, was the, uh, the old team associated gold tub, uh, RC 10 buggy. Um, and at the time, all I could afford was a used one. So, um, I don't know if they have them back there, but uh, out here they have a, a little newspaper called The Recycler, which is people selling, you know, old junk or old used stuff. So I got it for a hundred bucks and it wasn't much to look at and it fell apart, but it was mine and it was my first car and I loved it. 
<laughs> that's funny that you mentioned that because I definitely felt the same way about my Traxxas Slash and looking back on it now it's just kind of funny because it was just like what, what, what was I doing with that Traxxas Slash yeah well for me it was like my prized possession because uh you know we didn't have much money you know when I was growing up so so uh you know what you got was what you got and it took a while just to get that you know that used car and so of course new parts were out of the question so I learned really early how to take it apart and, and shim, you know, the, the A-arms and clean it constantly and just, you know, be able to reuse all the parts and try to, you know, tighten everything up on my own without having to, to buy new parts. Wow, that's awesome. Well, it definitely sounds like you've come a long way since that. So, you know, it's kind of cool to hear that. So since that, talk to us a little bit more about your driving career and what do you think that your biggest accomplishment was in your driving career? Well, when I first started, you know, the local track, which is the track that I own now, it was called Fast Lane, uh, Fast Lane Hobbies back in the uh, early 90s. And, and uh, um, you know, it's since changed names to Hot Rod Hobbies. But, you know, I when I first started coming here in the early 90s, uh, we had... Um, a dirt oval track and we had an off-road track. So I kind of got involved with both of them uh, early on. So um, my biggest accompl accomplishment by far is the uh, 2003 World Championships. I made um, both A-mains um, in uh, two-wheel drive and four-wheel drive buggy. This is 10-scale electric. I never was super big into the A-scale nitro. I was always a 10-scale electric guy. Um, <clears throat> so making both of those mains, um, you know, was a highlight for me because there was only uh, three people at that event that did it. Uh, Matt Francis, multi-time world champion, and of course, the late, great Brian Kinwald, who we just lost uh, last week uh, while we were all at PMB. Um, so to be in the same sentence as those two guys was an honor. And then, of course, throughout the years, I ended up uh, picking up between dirt oval and off-road uh, about 15 national championships in the uh, in the U.S. So, um yeah, that's what I got going for me. Not nothing, uh, nothing major like some of these guys. No world championships to brag about, but uh, you know, I did all right back in the day. Yeah, our thoughts and prayers are definitely with everybody who knew Brian Kinwall. I know he was a big influence in the RC community. I actually wasn't in RC racing that time. I was a bit of a late bloomer myself, so I didn't even know about that race. So that race is super cool to hear about. Um, but the other thing that I kind of want you to talk about is just take us through your entire driving career and kind of like what's your evolution? What cars did you go through? Just kind of take us through you as a pro driver. Fortunately for me, it was different times back then. And, uh, you know, well, different times in the sense that you had to really earn your sponsorship. And what I mean by that is, Nowadays, you basically place a call and and or, you know, somebody and uh, and it's it's a lot easier now than it was back then. I'll just uh, I'll say that. And uh, so, yeah, started in 92. And then, uh, you know, I went just like everything I do in life. If I get into something, I'm full throttle. You know, I don't you know, I don't do it, uh, you know, partially. I kind of, you know, devote, you know, everything I am into it because I want to be the, the best at what I do in all aspects. So by the time 1994 came around, I was already traveling, not really flying because no one would pay for that just yet. But, uh, 
you know, driving all over the place. I drove to Oklahoma City from California, which was, you know, roughly 24 hour drive and uh, ended up racing the Norca Nats. Norca was one of the sanctioning bodies alongside with Roar back then. And, uh, you know, ended up racing the nationals there, raced, you know, four classes, won three of the four nationals um, that I raced. And uh, from that point forward, I was approached by uh, Jack Johnson, who was the team manager for Team Losi at the time. There was no TLR back then. It was just Team Losi. And uh, he basically, you know, threw me up on the team and gave me, you know, you know, a hundred percent deal. And then, you know, then the plane ticket started flowing in and, and uh, I'll never forget my first travel race. It was actually in Florida, uh, a race called the uh, the Winter Champs. Um, I think it's in Lutz. I'm not sure, but uh, but yeah, I'll never forget. Um, you know, at that time they kind of put your name on the table. Um, you know, the team manager put your name on the table where you're pitting, and uh, you know they put me right between you know those two guys I mentioned before, who were my idols, Brian Kinwald and Matt Francis, and and uh, talk about you know, a learning curve and, and, uh, getting all this information and being part of the team thrown, you know, thrown into the deep end, I guess. And, uh, and, uh, from that point on just, uh, you know, picked up a couple nationals, you know, uh, throughout the, uh, the mid to late nineties. And then, you know, finally at the early two thousands, I kind of, uh, you know, was at my peak and, and, uh, made those world championship mains. And, and then, uh, then I noticed, you know, a little bit of a, a decline, you know, right after that and i don't know if it kind of was uh you know like i felt i reached the the highest point i could and i wasn't getting any younger because you know starting out late and and uh and you know reflexes are a big part and you know you had the up-and-comers you know the cavalaries the mayfields were all just getting in and and they were just taking the rc world by storm so i knew i didn't want to just you know disappear into the uh into the sunset so I had to figure out something I can do to stick around in the hobby that I love. And then I kind of grew up in and, and um, you know, the whole announcing thing just kind of fell in my lap. You know, we had a, a big race here um, when I was working for the previous owner and he said, maybe you should announce. And I said, man, I can't even give a oral book report in, in class, let alone, <laughs> you know, talk to hundreds and hundreds of people. But it was a little bit better because I was on a microphone and I was in a room and no one was staring at me. And so, so I started announcing and, and once again, you know, dove into it, you know, head first and tried to be as efficient and as good as I could try to be as exciting as I could. And, um, people around Southern California started taking notes, started hiring me to do, um, their events. And next thing you know, it snowballs. And here I am, you know, almost 30 years later, um, you know, roughly 27, 28 years later. Um, announcing all the biggest races. I had my stints with Roar and announced all the biggest Roar Nationals and and uh, doing all the, you know, the race time events now and all the, the dirt races back here on the West Coast and, uh, and uh, you know, booked up pretty much 40 plus weekends a year. And uh, that's where we are now. Awesome. So what would you say that your favorite class was? Oh, by, by far. Then this was before short course was out. So then it was for sure two wheel drive modified. That was the premier class. Kind of like if you go to PMB or whatnot, pro nitro buggy is the premier class back in, uh, in my racing days, it was always two wheel drive modified was the premier class. You make that main and you were somebody. So, and it was the hardest to drive, which I always liked to challenge. I hate, I hated, you know, having the, 
the track super hooked up where it was easier to drive for most. I like a, a looser, bumpier track. Um, in other words, I wanted my skill to prevail over everyone else's skill. I didn't want to have an easy track where it brought the field close together. Um, so um, two-wheel drive buggy. Now, of course, in, in the later years, now I'll bust out my, the only car I own right now is a two-wheel drive short course. I'm still on the team associated team. I'm still, I still have a contract. I still run for them when I do, when I do race, which is not very often. Um, but I, I love my two-wheel short course, my SC 6.1. I actually have an SC5M just because, like, short course is how I got started. That's the class that I ran for years. And so Dave always tells me, can we just get rid of that thing? That thing is the <laughs> stupidest thing ever. And I just can't. I can't get rid of it. Like, if it's a big race, I'll definitely run it at a big race where there's actually a class for it because it's just so much fun. Like, I just love racing my two-wheel drive short course. So I will not get rid of it no matter what Dave says. Yeah, and you're fortunate, too, because you have a husband that's supportive and someone that <laughs> races with you, and I just always think that that's the coolest thing. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. So the next thing that you kind of touched on that I want to move into is how you acquired Hot Rod Hobbies and kind of just what is the history of Hot Rod Hobbies there? Because I know it's been around for a long time. And I mean, I guess you're the owner now, right? So yeah, just talk to us about um, how Hot Rod Hobbies got started and where it's at now. Definitely the owner because the bills say so. And that's the worst part. <laughs> but uh, but uh, no, I mean... Um, this place started in 1987, so we're actually 32 years in, in the same spot. Um, I'm the fourth owner um, under the second name. As I said earlier, it started off in 87 um, as uh, Fastlane. A gentleman named Randy owned it. He had it for about three years, um, roughly until like 1990. Um, and then a guy named John bought it. He had it from 1990 to about 96. Um, and then... Uh, Rod uh, bought it, a guy named Rod, which his nickname was Hot Rod. So he's the one that changed the name to Hot Rod Hobbies to name it after himself. And that was 96 to about 2004. So he had it eight years. And then I took over in 2004 and have had it ever since. So it's just funny to me that each owner made it a little bit longer. The first owner was three years. The second owner was about six. The third owner was about eight. And here I am. I don't even know how many years it's been, 14 or 15 now. And, uh, Yep, we've been in the same exact unit the whole time with the same racetracks. We have outdoor racetracks. We have our off-road and our dirt oval. Um, so we've been, yeah, been in the same location. We have two acres out back where our racetracks are behind the building. And uh, here we are, 32 years later. So what are some of the biggest races that you have at Hot Rod Hobbies? Well, our biggest race, which has actually been on the decline that we had to move for the first time this year, um, it started back in, uh, and that's how I know how long I've been announcing because I've announced the race every year, and this year will be our 22nd annual. Um, so it, it, it's, it was called the Hot Rod Hobbies Off-Road Shootout, and uh, we got our name World Famous Hot Rod Hobbies because of the fact that every single big name throughout the years, um, you know, from Brian Kinwald to Matt Francis to Masami um, to all the international guys to every single pro driver from Associated to Losi you know, throughout the, the you know, the, uh, the mid-2000s when we were at our, our peak. Um, and we would get, you know, 450 entries 
which, you know, for an electric race is pretty darn good. And, uh, and, you know, over the years, uh, the race has kind of slipped down and, uh, you know, more people are, are preferring to race indoors, especially with 10 scale electric. So, um, last year was pretty much one of our weakest years on record. So I had to either, you know, cancel the race altogether or, or move it to an indoor location. So that's what I decided to do. So this coming year will be our, or this year that we're in will be our 22nd annual and it'll be the last weekend of June um, at an indoor track, which is about an hour north of here uh, called Rain Man's Hobby and Raceway. It's in the city of Bakersfield, California. Um, but Randy up there was super excited and, and we're going to try to start fresh and revamp the race. And I've already contacted several of uh, my friends, which are, you know, the top pro drivers and, and uh, hopefully a few of them will be able to make it once their schedules are checked and uh, we'll try to start something new indoors and kind of keep up with the times. Yeah, Dave and I definitely want to get out to California at some point. We've talked about going out to California to get some racing in at several different tracks, but just don't know when. But I thought the other interesting thing that you said was just how the times have changed because I've definitely seen that here on the East Coast as well. When I first moved here about five years ago and started RC racing in the Carolinas, my husband and I would always race tent scale as our second class whenever, wherever we would go. We'd race tent scale two-wheel drive buggy outdoor, that is, not indoor. And those were some really fun races because that was the most competitive class that I ever was with my husband. I'd never beat him in eight scale, whether it was e-buggy or nitro, but for whatever reason, tent scale two-wheel drive, I was able to keep up with him. And I swear to you, I don't know how I did it, but... Nine times out of ten, we'd always be battling for third position, and we'd cross the line one right after each other, and it'd always be me that got it. So I'd be in the darn podium picture, and he won it, and so he was always get so mad. But um, it was fun racing, and now it's just non-existent anymore. You don't see that as a class at any of the um, tracks that you go to now. Yeah, it's a bummer because obviously I own an outdoor electric track. We do race Nitro. It's a little bit small, but we do have our loyal following of Nitro A-scale guys that come out and race. And uh, we like to call ourselves kind of like the Bristol of RC. We're one of the smaller tracks, but, you know, it's still fun. There's a little bit of, you know, bumping and banging, I guess. But, uh, yeah, no, that's what I was, you know, born and raised on was outdoor electric, you know, outdoor tracks with my 10-scale electric cars. And, it's definitely a shame. I think back to the early years of the JBRL. We're we're in our fifteenth or sixteenth year of JBRL, and and I and I sometimes I'll pull out one of our early season flyers from back in the uh, mid '90s when we, I'm sorry, the mid 2000s when we first started, and uh, I only had one indoor track and seven outdoor tracks, and there was only one indoor track in Southern California, and now I think there's only maybe three or four. Uh, outdoor tracks that are still holding on racing 10 scale electric but the numbers are down across the board where it seems like all the more popular tracks are the indoor clay so hopefully there's a uh, some sort of revival or resurgence and uh, you know people decide hey I want to go outside but now you know it's just a different it's just a different uh, crowd you know the younger kids are used to being inside no one wants to get dusty or dirty no one wants to clean their cars you know um, no one wants to drip sweat, you know, it's just, it's just a different world. So I can either kind of 
fall apart or keep up with the times. And obviously I can't do anything about my track. So we're going to keep on keeping on, but it's not like I can put a, you know, put a building around it. So um, we're going to keep going and, uh, you know, see how far we can take it. Well, yeah, if there's any way that we can help keep that going, we will. Dave and I always keep our 10 scale two-wheel drive buggies around. Those are kind of outdated too, just because it's fun to go race 10 scale at different places, especially if the weather is not permitting to race 8 scale. So we'll just put whatever setup on it, whether it's carpet, indoor, outdoor, and just go race it whenever we want to race it. Yeah. We also want to talk about your race directing or race promoting, race announcing, whatever you want to call it, career that you're in now because you're a very well-known name in RC as far as race directing or promoting or announcing goes, and you've really come full circle with that. So talk to us about what your favorite events have been to announce, kind of like your staple events or just anything you want to about that topic. Well, the, the, the pinnacle so far, I don't know if pinnacle is the right word, but the biggest race that I've ever done was the 2016 World Championships in Las Vegas, uh, the one where David Ronifolk won. Um, you know, I was very fortunate to be asked by uh, Chris Oko and David, who were the uh, co-owners of the track at the time. Um, you know, Chris grew up racing here, you know, at my track in California, and so, you know, as soon as he got word that they won the bid for the uh, world championships, he told me the, the first person he thought of uh, was myself to announce, which I was very thankful for. Um, so that was the biggest announcing accomplishment. That was actually my second Worlds. I did one a couple of years before, which was uh, a Nitro uh, Touring Cars World Championship. I believe it was in Texas. Um, but the entries were, I mean, there was only like 60, 70 entries at that one. So, um, so, and of course now currently the, uh, the biggest events I, you know, I've done, I did five or six or seven years of all the roar nationals. So the, the electric 10 scale nationals, the nitro a scale nationals, even the on-road stuff, I would do every single roar national. Um, and that was probably throughout the, I would say right around. 2010 so maybe a couple years before a couple years after and then the schedule just started getting crazy because so many people were calling and calling and calling and and um you know i had to make a decision and you know truth be told i had to go with the the better paying events um if i had two options on the same weekend obviously if i had committed to somebody previously i would stick with that one but if i had my choice i would go with the the better paying events and uh and uh, so now currently, I would say, you know, all of Dave's races at race time, all of Joey's races uh, from the dirt, you know, the, the dirt nitro challenge, the silver state coming up, of course, Dave's four races with the, the pinnacle being the psycho nitro blast that we just got done with. But he also has the AMS, the Wicked Weekend and the SIC. Um, so, you know, he basically, you know, asked me to do all. Um, and so. Um, I've been doing, you know, those for the last couple years, some of them longer with other announcers, um, you know, because some some of those races are so huge that one announcer, there's just not enough voice in this body to be able to make it 24 hours a day for three or four days. So um, those are definitely the biggest races right now. Um, you know, I feel that, um, you know, I do a good job as far as um, getting through the races. 
Um, I've never claimed to be the most exciting play-by-play guy, but most people hire me because of my efficiency. I'm really, really, really good at handling the bigger numbers, um, and and that's that's my specialty is pumping through a million racers and getting done at a decent time. Yeah, I can definitely attest to that at every single race time event that I've been to. I can definitely say that you get the show moving, so thank you for that. The last thing that we want to talk about here, though, is your JBRL League or JBRL Racing Series because that definitely has become a very well-known series now. So talk to us about that. Yeah, yeah. So going back to my racing days, uh, that organization that I was telling you about called NORCA, which is N-O-R-R-C-A, they're no longer around, but it stood for National Organization for Racing Radio Controlled Autos just like kind of Roar is now. Um, but uh, they used to have a, a Southern California series, and my most fondest memories growing up racing, or not really growing up because I didn't start till 17, but my early, my late teens, my early 20s, was traveling around with my friends, hopping in the car, splitting gas money, throwing you know six people in the hotel room, sleeping bags all over the place, you know, going to these, these races and having something to look forward to every month. And I ran those series races for many, many years. And then Norca went out. They, they went out of business and, and there was a, a lapse in the market. There was lots of racing going on in Southern California, but nobody was doing a series. So in mid-2000, I think it was 2005, um, <clears throat> it was right around the same time. Um, I bought the shop in 2004. And I, I actually, I started the series in 04 and I bought the shop in 05. So everything kind of happened right around that time. And uh, I decided, hey, I've been announcing for a couple years. I'm pretty good with my, you know, organization skills. So, you know, I'm going to try having this series. And, uh, it, you know, it started off, we were calling it the Jimmy Babcock Racing League um, because I kind of wanted everybody to know who was behind it. I had made a name um, through, through my racing and, uh, you know, everybody kind of knew that part of it. And uh, everybody kind of knew that I had got into announcing. And so I wanted to start a series. So, you know, of course, I had traveled to all the local tracks in Southern California when I was a racer. So I knew pretty much all the owners. So I just kind of sat there one day and, you know, decided to try to call everybody and just gauge the interest. So I called all the most popular tracks, um, not only for, well, at the time we started, we were doing electric off-road and electric on road for the first two years 2004 and 2005 and so i just called all the the owners and you know they said yeah it's a good idea so i started getting dates out there and and um you know it kind of grew into what it is now the first couple years on road never really took off in 2004 and 2005 i don't think i ever got over 100 entries at any of the rounds so economically it just wasn't feasible to do so anymore so in 2006, after the first two years of electric off-road and electric on-road, I, I, uh, I stopped doing the electric on-road and I brought in the nitro off-road because that was growing in popularity. And I've always raced off-road. I've never been an on-road guy. So I figured, why not do electric off-road uh, and nitro off-road, two different series. So, um, so that's what I've been doing, you know, pretty much ever since. And, uh, we're entering our 16th season. Actually, we already started with our first round of electric. Uh, next uh, next weekend is our second round for electric. And then the following weekend on the 27th, 
of April, we kick off uh, the first round of Nitro for the for the 2019 season. So, um, so yeah, it's been a long haul, and it's kind of been a unique career because I tell people it's it's basically been the first 15 years were as a as a pro racer, um, and then the last 15 years has been as a promoter slash announcer. Even though I've been announcing a little longer, and the racing and the announcing kind of you know crossed over each other for a few years, but uh, that's pretty much you know, the last 30 years of my life devoted to the hobby. Yeah, the JVRL series is something that I think everybody knows about, and I know it's on my bucket list to get to a JVRL series race, especially the Nitro one, so I'm sure it's on a lot of other people's bucket list too. But what I also think is cool is just kind of to see how you've come full circle in this industry going from pro driver to now you name it you're doing it track owner race director race promoter anything and everything that you're doing um is awesome and we definitely appreciate all that you're doing for this industry yeah no i appreciate it because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of uh, behind the scenes work um you know like when a pro driver goes out there and performs he's in front of everybody and he gets all the accolades um, putting on a series, you know, 90% of the work is done behind the scenes, sitting in my office, looking at the calendar, looking at the internet, searching for dates, you know, making calls to track owners, making calls to sponsors, um, you know, just getting everything lined up. And actually the, the, the break time for me is getting behind the microphone. Now the hard work is over and I can do what I love doing, which is announcing and putting on races. And, and uh, I get a kick out of seeing who's fast every weekend you know i usually announce all the bigger races so all the pros are generally at all the events i do so who's it going to be this weekend is it going to be mayfield is it going to be tebow is it going to be lutz is it going to be cavalry bornhorst you know you name it you know every every race we do it seems like somebody else you know figures something out and uh that's that's what i really enjoy the most you know unfortunately there's a little bit of uh you know, drama that goes along with it and a few bad seeds here and there. But I tend to be the type that focuses on the the uh, the guys that are there for the right reasons. I do dwell on some of the negatives. You know, if someone has a bad time at my event or, you know, comes up and yells at me or whatever, it does wear on me. It gets easier as the years go on. It really used to affect me early on. But now I realize, you know, that not everybody's going to be happy at every race and someone's going to have an issue. And when you have hundreds and hundreds of people at each one of these events, it's almost impossible for everybody to leave there on cloud nine, having a great time, you know? Well, we appreciate everything that you do. And I know how much work it is behind the scenes for one single event, let alone the 40 that you do. So uh, we just really appreciate you working for us as hard as you do. Well, thank you very much. It, uh, it means a lot. Okay, so our next segment that we're going to transition into is our P&B segment because both Jimmy and I were in attendance at the P&B this year. Me as a racer, Jimmy as the announcer. So for this one, we're actually going to hand it over to Mackenzie. Yeah, so uh, I'm also going to say I'm super jealous because I so wanted to attend P&B, but unfortunately, school and life got in the way, so super jealous, but if y'all can just go ahead and give me like an overall recap on the PMB experience. Ladies first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
PNB, let's see. So I think that PNB in one word is definitely psycho, especially because you're not getting a whole lot of sleep throughout the weekend. And I feel like I'm still dragging butt a couple days later. I thought the Joker lane added a cool new twist to the PNB next year and kind of took it to that next level. And we'll talk about that later on in the podcast because I do have some trackside interviews of people saying what their strategy was during the race as far as the Joker lane goes. I thought that the track was challenging but fun. And I think that the race in general was just fun. We had a good time hanging out with all of our friends at RC race and just a good time racing. I um, I always tell people that if I have a go-kart race and I have a big RC race scheduled on the same weekend, you're probably going to see me pick the RC race every time just because the atmosphere at an RC track versus the atmosphere at a go-kart track is so different. At a go-kart track, everything is so serious. You can't talk to anybody. There's not really a whole lot of fun because everybody's just trying to be the next big NASCAR driver. But at an RC race, it's actually fun to hang out with people and help people and things of that nature. So although Psycho was Psycho, it was it was a lot of fun too. Well, my thoughts are uh, a little bit different because obviously I'm not a racer anymore and uh, I have a different seat than than Miss Katie for sure. Um, but I, I I actually thought about this and and the, the numbers are pretty staggering. I was very fortunate to have Dave allow me to bring my buddy Sean Miller to help with the announcing because as I said earlier, at these type of events, one person's voice is never, ever, ever going to make it with those hours. So check this out. I kind of calculated that from the moment practice started till the moment the last main, there was only two and a half hours of inactivity on the racetrack, if you can believe it. That's pretty crazy. We're talking from 6 a.m. on Friday until midnight, Sunday night slash Monday morning. So obviously we all know 6 to 6, 6 a.m. on Friday to 6 a.m. on Saturday was 24 hours of practice. There was 30 minutes and then qualifying started at 6.30. We qualified from 6 a.m. on Saturday until 4.01 a.m. on Sunday morning and then the main event started at 6 a.m. so there was two hours between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. and it took me about an hour and 35 minutes to get those main events set up um, because of 765 entries and getting the mains in the order Dave likes to have the pro mains run a little bit sooner Um, in other words if we ran pro buggy at the end at midnight there would be crickets in the arena watching right Mm -hmm. Um, so he likes to move the two premier classes up. So getting those figured out how to move them up. And he likes to normally run Truggy at about 1 p.m., Buggy at about 3 p.m. So having to do all the math and then uh, get everything exactly aligned. Um, we, we actually got the mains posted about 535. And we got a little bit of backlash because, you know, a couple people missed their early races because the, the mains weren't posted in time. And I I, I, you know, tried to explain it to him the best I could that, hey, we we got done at four o'clock and it, I busted my butt for an hour and a half to get these mains posted in time to start at six o'clock. So. Um, so, yeah. So um, obviously crazy, crazy hours, uh, crazy practice hours, crazy racing hours, running all night long um, exhaustion. Um, I actually came out a couple days early this year to be uh, a tourist throughout Tennessee me and my buddy Sean, we ended up spending the day. Um, we flew out on Tuesday instead of Thursday. We spent the day in Memphis 
um, on, uh, on, on uh, Wednesday, uh, you know, seeing some stuff. And then Thursday, we spent the day in Nashville, and then we headed to the track Thursday night. So it was a long, long trip. We were gone for about seven days total. Um, but we got the fun stuff out of the way before uh, more fun stuff began, but exhausting fun. But uh, all in all, it was good. Like I said, uh, the racing was great. Uh, like Katie mentioned, the uh, Joker Lane was something that Dave approached me about um, that I had kind of had to figure out through uh, uh, live RC and lifetime scoring to make sure I knew exactly how it was going to work. And uh, after getting the information from the from the guys uh, that know what's up with it, you know, I was able to get it all situated, figure it all out. And between uh, Dave and Bobby and Jacob and, and myself and Sean, um, I think it went off uh, without a hitch. Um, the Joker Lane could have been positioned a little bit better. We talked about that. A couple people kind of, I mean, Katie knows she was there, but a couple people kind of blew out that first corner and ended up um, clipping the Joker Lane, and it kind of affected a few people's runs because there, there was a strong penalty of a lap lost if you hit it more than the required time per race. But it was definitely interesting, and it was awesome to – to talk about it so much it, it almost was too much of a focal point i think every race it was just joker 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 you know and obviously you know i was announcing most of it and, and but you know we had to let people know how many they used how many they still had and it just you know some people like to use it early some people like to use it later but all in all the numbers went up greatly from last year by over 100 entries um most of you that know from last year um, it was three days this year it was or four days. If you count practice this year, it was brought back down to two days of racing and one day of practice. And I think it was more doable for people, you know, to, to, to be able to take off, you know, one less day. So, um, yeah, Katie hit it on the head. Psycho is, is the best way. Yeah. That's awesome to get both of y'all's perspectives kind of on, um, on the weekend. And I know Katie kind of touched on this a little bit and we all, both kind of talked about the Joker lane, but what were y'all's thoughts on this year's layout as a whole? Yeah, so the layout I thought was actually one of their best layouts yet because I thought it was challenging, but I thought it was doably challenging. It was fun, and I thought that there was not really any places where you felt like you were just going to break your car or you were flat landing so hard that you felt like you were going to bust a gas tank or something like that so I definitely thought that that was good but for me if you know what kind of racer I am or you've heard me talk about what kind of racer I am on the podcast I'm definitely a consistent racer and I'm going to beat you on consistency I'm probably not going to be faster than you but I'm definitely not going to wreck and that just didn't happen this weekend I ran the open class for the first time and moving up to open from sportsman when I ran Sportsman last year at Psycho Nitro and even at Wicked Weekend, I was able to podium and get myself into the A main just by kind of like putting around and not wrecking. And my mentality going into the open class this year was that I just couldn't do that this year. I couldn't putt and not wreck and still find myself in the A main. I actually had to show some speed and not wreck. And since I was trying to go for the speed aspect so much and really pick it up as far as pulling the throttle more and getting in and out of the corners quicker, I just kind of overdrove the track too much. And every time I came off the driver's stand, whether it was the qualifiers, any of the three qualifiers or my mains, I never had a run where I was just like, man, that was a good run. It just didn't happen for me that uh, this past weekend. I think in the first qualifier, 
uh, Derek was pitting me and I must have wrecked every lap and the more I wrecked the more I was like all right Derek I gotta go I gotta go I gotta go faster this lap this has to be the best joker lap ever and then it would just force me to make a mistake even more trying to make up that missed time because you just can't if the time is gone it's gone it's time to like focus and settle down and and get the rest of the wrecks out of the way. So yeah, I didn't really find my consistency, but I thought that the track was definitely a good track. Yeah, and from from my seat, I kind of judge things a little bit different. If there's one pet peeve that I have, it's people not finishing their run. And what I mean by that is if the track is too gnarly, I forget what race it was last year. Um, it could have been this race. Um, or AMS, I forget which one Bobby did, but it was a, it was a track where it was just, the jumps were so ridiculously big all over the place. And literally once we got into the main events, only half the cars were finishing because everybody was breaking off of these big jumps. And I'm not a fan of that because I like, uh, you know, I like people to get their money's worth. I like people to race it out to the end. I really like this track because it wasn't super gnarly. Um, it did have some challenging sections, but, you know, and, you know, a couple big doubles here or there, but it wasn't, you know, anything that was really like a chassis slapper or something that was going to blow up your speed control and your, you know, your electric buggy when you flat landed. Um, so I really think Bobby did a, did a good job. Obviously I never turned a lap myself on it, but I probably watched more laps than anybody did. And, uh, it looked like it, it was flowing some of the racing we got towards the, you know, towards the later mains or the higher mains uh, ended up coming out, you know, really, really good. Um, you know, the wall, like Katie said, was brought back and it seemed the same to me. I know that it actually was higher. Uh, not a lot of people know that the top go-kart tire got knocked off in practice and it actually was underneath the timing and scoring table. Cause someone brought it up to me and I set it down and I told Dave, and Dave was going to reinstall it, but it never happened. So it was actually a go-kart tire lower, you know, once, you know, racing started. But all in all, great track. You know, Bobby from uh, RC Trackmasters uh, always does a fantastic job. Um, we don't have any wooden jumps out here in California. Um, so I always, you know, love coming out there um, as a racer. I would have thought I would have loved the wooden jumps because as we all know, the faces of some of these jumps can get rutted out and kick your car every which direction. So having that consistency of the takeoff, uh, I would think would just add a little bit more comfort, you know, when you're driving around the track. Yeah, I agree. I thought the track was built really well and it was definitely one of my favorite layouts, but I think even the landings of the jump, there was enough of a landing that, especially in the sportsman class, if the sportsman guys overshot it, you know, you were still okay. There was still a bit of a landing there so that, like you said, you weren't chassis slapping super hard. So I thought that was good. But, yeah, my problem was just that I overdrove it. <laughs> you did good. <laughs> okay, and so I know – uh, Jimmy kind of hit on this a little bit earlier about some of the changes made this year to PMB as like how they had the 24 hour practice this time. But how do you feel um, the overall schedule went for this race? Like, obviously, we know it's called Psycho Nitro for a reason and all of that. But do you think the schedule went overall as planned? 
So the first thing that I liked about the schedule is the fact that it was a three-day event because I can't really call off work for one day, let alone two or three days. So if it were any longer than that, I wouldn't be able to go to the event because I can't just really go to my principal and say, hey, I need two or three days off because I need to go RC race. And I wouldn't be able to say that to my kids either. I wouldn't be able to say, hey guys, I'm not going to be teaching you for the next two or three days. You're going to have a sub because I'm going to be at a really big remote control car race. Like that just is not how my real life works. So I wouldn't be able to go if it were any longer. I also understand that it makes the event kind of more crazy because you're trying to jam pack everything into three days instead of four days. But again, I just wouldn't be able to make it. Um, also, people are always saying, oh, teachers, you have the summers off. Well, for one, I really don't have that much of my summer off. I can explain that in a different podcast. But for two, I don't get to pick my days off. My days off are solely what is already built into the calendar and what the kids have off. So it's really hard for me to call off, period. I just don't get days off. But the other thing that um, I thought was really great about the schedule is the fact that you were racing all of your classes all at once. So all of the open were together, all of the sportsmen were together, all of the pro were together. So that kind of helped you have more of a break throughout the day. But man, it's happened to us twice this year. Last year, I was in the Sportsman E-Buggy and the Sportsman Nitro Buggy A-Main, and we didn't leave the arena till 2.30. It got us home at like 5 o'clock in the morning, Monday morning, if not later than that. And then we just turned around and went to work. Like we maybe got a 15-minute nap before we went to work. And then this year, even still, with cutting the triple electric mange, which I thought was a great idea because it is the Psycho Nitro Blast, and I'm also okay with if we can't have triple electric mains, then it is perfectly fine to cut my nitro main down too because everything in the program should get cut, not just the electric main. So I'm totally all for that too, but I think it definitely helped us have a shorter main day but we were still the last race because Dave made the open nitro buggy a main and we didn't get out of there till midnight so we got home somewhere around four o'clock in the morning and then had about an hour this year to go to bed so I don't know if there's anything or any way that we can do because it's kind of crazy hearing how little hours we had left in the schedule already but I don't know if there's like classes that we could cut or something like that because Getting home that late on Sunday night, Monday morning is just really crazy. So I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, Jimmy, or ways we can fix it. I have lots of thoughts on this. So first of all, I feel opposite about the schedule than you do, but I'm not the boss. I actually prefer the four-day as an announcer, and I'll tell you why. Obviously, I completely understand your point of view, and that's the same point of view of many, and that's exactly why we ran three days. And that's exactly why the numbers went up 100 entries this year. So I'm all for that. But on, you know, as far as a selfish note, obviously, nobody would like wants to announce, you know, at three in the morning, you know, so I liked last year a little bit better, in the sense that we were done by eight or nine every night, and everybody can kind of get a good night's sleep. And there was more rest to be had. But once again, it took up an extra day and, and, and the numbers went down and people couldn't take that time off. So 
So, you know, obviously I'm there to work. You guys are there for recreation and to, and to play. So I'm for whatever's going to get more people to the race. Um, the interesting part was last year um, with 100 less entries, we didn't finish qualifying until 430. So not sure why that was. We had 100 more entries this year. We started the mains at six o'clock, the same exact time both years. Um, and we finished a half an hour early with qualifying. So the only thing that could mean is that we hustled a little bit more throughout, you know, the whole day on Saturday and into Sunday. Um, you're absolutely right. Last year, um, Dave came up with the order. Of course, he wanted to put pro in the middle so that they were there in the middle of the day. You know, they didn't have to get there too early, too late whatever the case may be, I think a majority of it was to have it centered right between the sportsman and open crowd so that they are always there to assist. Um, so last year we started with, you know, with open and, and finished with sportsmen. And then this year I said, it's only fair to start with sportsmen and finish with open. Of course, Katie moved up in classes. So that affected her big time. And, uh, you know, as we said earlier, the pro classes were moved forward, but somebody had to be at the end. So all the you know, open buggy, it would have been sporting buggy or open truggy or sports. But either way, it would have been somewhere near the end. You might have been able to get out of there maybe an hour, hour and a half, two hours sooner, which I'm sure would make a huge difference. Um, you know, so we'll definitely, you know, think twice about, you know, and, and every year we're going to rotate it a little more. So maybe next year we'll put buggies, you know, we'll put buggies before truggies. This the last two years we've done truggies before buggies. So, um, you know, eliminating classes, it's kind of tough because, you know, a, the biggest complaint that racers have is too many racers. Well, they're thinking about it from their side. Um, promoters are thinking about it from their side. And what's a promoter thinking about? Making the most money. They're here to make money. We're all here to make money if you're working the event. So putting a cap on the race would be an option, but therefore would generate less money for the promoter. Um, so I don't think there's ever going to be a cap on the entries. Um, you know, I don't know how much more we can do. I know that in years past, this race has gotten up to, I want to say Dave said 900 and, you know, with only two and a half hours of inactivity, I don't know how much more could be fit into those three days. Um, you know, I guess we can qualify until, you know, five. 45 and start the mains at six, but that doesn't even leave enough time to get the main set up. So yeah, I mean, for, for the amount of entries, I think the format is about as good as it can get. Obviously someone's always going to be in that last race and someone's always going to get home later than, than, than somebody else. But uh, I always just try to rotate it around the best I can to try to make it as fair as possible. Yeah, it's pretty much if you're in the A main, you can expect it to be a late night because it's just going to be a while before we even get to the A mains. Um, but if you do get to the A mains, I mean, this happened to me last year. My first e-buggy race, I finished fifth, and then my nitro race, I finished third. And Dave wanted to leave after my nitro race and go home because nitro is what I really cared about. But I was like, Dave, I finished fifth in e-buggy. Like, I have a shot at the podium. We already made it this far. Like, we just got to stick it out because I really have a chance at podiuming here still. 
And so I think I finished third in that race, which put me fifth overall. So I actually did podium. But you just you don't want to leave even though you do know that it's going to be a late night because it's like you came this far. This is such a big race. You had to beat out about 90 people to even get yourself into the A-Main. So it's a big accomplishment to be in there. But now that you're that much closer to winning or being on the podium, it's like you don't want to leave. So it's such a... It's such a conflicting time. And then it also happened to Dave this year. He really had a shot at the aiming and open nitro buggy because he qualified third in one of the rounds. So he really showed some speed in open nitro buggy. And he was like, we can't leave. And I was just like, oh, I know we can't leave. I know we can't. I know you have a good shot at this. So we stuck it out, but it's just really hard getting home that late. And I don't want to sound insensitive about, you know, being happy that the triple electric amines were cut because I'm not. And I know it's not, it's hard for the electric guys hearing that coming from me when I'm a nitro racer more than I am an electric racer. But like I said, it is the psycho nitro blast and I'm okay with the nitro mains being cut too. Um, I've talked to Brandon Mountain before about, the sportsman and open races being even shorter than the pro races would be, I would be totally okay with that too because we're not the elite pro class. But um, yeah, I think it helped having not having the triple electric mains because every time you start an electric race, you're adding that many more minutes than even a nitro race because we're talking about minute lap time. So it takes you a minute to get around the track for your warm up. Then it takes you another minute to line up. And then at the end of the race, it's probably going to take an extra minute if anybody got another lap because when we're talking about minute lap times, then you got another minute to end the race. And all of those minutes keep adding up every time you have to restart an electric race. Um, so, yeah, that's just my thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, it definitely will. If you remember last year, I think we did AAA mains, and I think we got done, I want to say, at 2 or 2.30 a.m. on Monday morning. Um, so that was one of the things that I told Dave has to happen. And I did, you know, I had one gentleman come in and show his, you know, voice his displeasure. And I explained to him, you know, that it's for the greater of the entire program. And and unfortunately, it's 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 a reality that, you know, everybody's, you know, not everybody, but most people are, you know, really only concerned with themselves and their race program. And, and uh, you know, we've had people fighting for longer mains in California forever. And, you know, people have even said, well, if I'm in the D main, I should get the same exact main as the A main as far as length, because we paid the same amount. And I'm like, well, that's just not how racing works in any aspect. But, but, you know, I, 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 I basically told it to him this way. I said, well, Okay, so if we're running 20-minute A mains and we run your D main at 20 minutes, you're going to be done at 1 or 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you're going to be at home. Well, all these longer, lower mains are going to add up, and now these guys that earn their spot in the A main are running at you know 1 or 2 in the morning because of all the lower mains being longer. So I get it that everybody here, you know, everybody wants longer mains. Um, obviously, that's a product of nitro racing and electric you know, a scale racing, but the only thing that I'm paid to do and worry about is the race program in its entirety. So if I have to ruffle a few feathers or a few people are, uh, for lack of better words, butthurt because of it, then, you know, then so be it because I have to answer to 750 entries and get them done. And I thought midnight was a pretty, 
darn good finish time. Um, you know, obviously two hours, two and a half hours earlier than last year with a hundred more entries. Obviously we saved time without those AAA mains. Um, you know, um, and you know, the nitro races got cut down too. the original lengths were not what they were, but after we did the math, you know, we cut the lowers, uh, the B's and the C's down as well. And, uh, you know, I calculated that we would be done right around 11 o'clock. So I was about an hour off, but that came with, you know, some of the water and some of the two minute grace periods, all this, you know, the, the driver introduction, that was like 20 minutes. And then of course, all the podium pictures after each one of the main events was done. So all that stuff added up and we were actually, if none of that stuff would have happened, we would have been ahead of schedule in the mains as well. So, um, I thought noon was pretty good except for when that, uh, alarm goes off on Monday morning. Right, Katie? Oh yeah, for sure. When I came in on Monday, my kids were like, you were in White Pine, Tennessee. We saw you at the Psycho Nitro. We knew you were there. And I was just like, oh yeah, crap. You caught me. You tell them you had a Nitro hangover? <laughs> yeah. They were like, why are you here teaching us if you just got home? And I was like, you guys, I love you that much that I didn't want to miss another day with you. Good answer. Yeah, the other change that I thought was really good is that people got their trophies right after their race was over because I really did not think that it took that much extra time just to take care of it right then and there. It took like a maybe, I don't know, 30 seconds to one minute to say all of their names in the order that they finished in. Their trophies were kind of already sitting there, so they were ready to go. And then the other 13 people who didn't podium in the race, they were already on their way out to Marshall, so there were really only five guys missing in the marshalling spot so there was plenty of marshal spots to cover for the warm-up lap and so they quickly snapped the picture uh went on with their way versus last year we didn't get done till 2 30 and then i still had to wait around for my podium pictures yeah yeah that's what we do in the jbrl and i felt that was good um i've always been a fan of doing it that way because once again if you're in that very first a main Whatever it was, I, I know the last race ended at midnight, but the first race probably ended at about nine or eight. Um, so, you know, I, one of the Truggy races, I'm not sure the order. My brain is fried still, but but uh, but uh, yeah. So at least those people, then they get their po they get their picture, they get their trophy, they go out and they turn marshal. And then when their marshal's done, then they can just split. And like you said, they don't have to stick around all the way to the very end. So de that's definitely a welcome change. It did take on average three to five minutes per race um which is why you know the schedule got pushed back but it was a good it was a good uh positive addition to the program to get a few people out of there a little sooner i think it's easier a lot a lot too because the fact that everyone kind of comes off the stand and they have their cars there you don't have to wait too long for certain people call people to come up they're all kind of right there so it it does make it a lot easier i think to do it right then yeah. And then you obviously you get to capture you get to capture the moment, too. You know, in other words, these people just walked off the stand. So their faces are blotchy or red or snot coming out of their nose, you know, tears coming out of their eyes from keeping them open all the time. Or they got the uh, the the thrill of victory in their face and the adrenaline still pumping. So you get to capture all of that in a photo versus when, you know, hours later when everybody's sleepy and and, you know, kind of over their race or forgot what they even did in their race. Right. So this kind of uh, kind of goes off of what you just said. 
uh, a little bit. So whose performances or like what racers were you most impressed with this year at Psycho Nitro? Okay, so my answer would definitely be Tyler Jones for the pro class because Tyler Jones was on fire this weekend and showed some serious, serious speed in the pro class. And that was just a lot of fun to see him get the win in pro nitro buggy. You know, when I pick a guy to root for in pro nitro buggy, you know, because we're all sitting there watching the pro nitro race, it's just kind of fun for everybody to pick who they want to win or who their guy is going to be to win. I'm always about a good underdog story. I don't know if it's because I feel like females are the underdogs in this sport too. But if there's a guy in there who I think has potential win, but there may be the underdogs going against all the big dog names, then that's the guy that I'm going to root for every time. And it was so much fun to see Tyler Jones pull out that win over Tebow and Lutz, and Drake, and all the other big names that were there. So that was super cool to see him win the Nitro Buggy class. And then also in the Open and Sportsman class, these are these are going to feel like two obvious answers. Like, oh, come on, you're picking girls because you are a girl. But Kiara Hold really impressed me in the Open class because she too moved up from the Sportsman class to Open class just like I did. She qualified towards the front of the C-Main, if not started on pole in the C-Main, and she was able to keep that lead. So that really helped her starting out front, and she bumped to the B-Main. Something that I can't even say that I did in the open class. So for her to get to the B main and open moving up from sportsman, I thought that was really awesome. And then obviously Miss Bella, Miss Bella in the sportsman e-buggy class. She is so dang cute and fast. She TQ'd that class. And then I'm pretty sure she held the lead in that sportsman e-buggy race from the first second to the last minute, and that was really awesome to see her do well this weekend. So those are my picks for most impressed drivers this weekend. Yeah, my answers are pretty much almost the same. Um, you know, obviously, Tyler Jones, I, on, the, on the way home, uh, we happen to be on the same flight as Kevin Gayen, who was the uh, team manager, or who is the team manager for TLR, and we were actually having... Uh, lunch at the airport before we, we, we hopped on the plane and, and we were talking about it. And I, I remember, you know, seeing him and generally what happens for someone um, of his, I say it with all due respect, but we all know who the top pros are, right? And we know who not the top pros are. So generally, if you're not a top pro, you'll have your few minutes out of the gate where you're running up front, you can hang. But generally, um, as the race goes on, um, those drivers tend to to make mistakes and fall fall down the ranking, and it's always the top pros that prevail. So I remember seeing him at the beginning up front, and you know I think he qualified fourth, and I'm like, okay, you know I've seen Tyler run before. He he's he runs good, but you know more than likely he's going to slip. And then halfway through, you know he's still running right up there, and and then towards the end he's still running up there, and and I'm watching and I'm watching. I'm like, man, this guy is killing it. He's getting around the track. And, uh, you know, he's racing Bornhorst and, and uh, you know, Dakota Fend is one we didn't mention. Oh, yeah, Dakota Fend, yeah. And Tebow and, you know, Mackenzie knows all these, you know, teammates of hers. And, and, uh, and you know, he just pulled it off. I mean, yeah, you know, Tebow had a big lead and had a mistake and, or a flame out or what have you. And Lutz had a lead and he had a flame out. And, um, but still, that's part of racing. You know, 30-minute main, you got to be there for 30 minutes if you flame out 
then you didn't have your your stuff together regardless, you know, and Tyler had his stuff together. So, um, you know, very impressive. I'm also impressed, you know, even though they're, they're top guys, you know, Ryan and, and um, Jared are, you know, with new chassis this year. And although these guys can drive a shoebox, you know, to, to, to jump into a new car and, uh, you know, still be running as fast as you were with your old car is uh, something that the average Joe just can't do. It's going to take them a while. So kudos to those guys as well. And then, of course, who, you know, we can't not talk about Miss Bella. I mean, the biggest class of the entire event with 90 something entries was Sportsman Electric Buggy, the biggest class by far. And uh, the little rock star went out there and top qualified and I think led from tone to tone in the main. And uh, of course, you know, the family dialed in her car and got it all ready. And you know, dad and mom and and uh, little brother, you know, are there supporting. But uh, yeah, those are those are the ones that stuck out this week. And I think there is a couple. I'm not super familiar with all the East Coast racers yet, as I've only been doing races back there a couple times a year. But there's somebody that I can't quite remember. I was trying to remember when Katie was talking um, who who he was. But uh, there was somebody in open that was running up front and consistently up front and, and was driving very, very impressive. So um, I'll have to look at the, the you know, the results to, to figure out who that is. I might have to type it if, you know, if Katie posts this on Facebook or something, might have to type it in the comments. Yeah, so obviously, like, I was not there at Psycho, but I will, say, <laughs> I will say I kept up with the race most of the weekend on Live RC, um, and I actually made sure on Sunday, I was like, Mom, Dad, we are going to be home by the time that the pros start because I want to make sure I watch the race. And so uh, we actually streamed Live RC to our TV right before um, the Pro Buggy Main. And it's funny because, like, my mom and dad was, were both sitting next to me, and they asked me, um, they were like, so who do you think is going to win this race? And, you know, obviously the first people that are going to come to your head are going to be Lutz, Tebow, Bornhorst, because, you know, they're in the race and they're the top names. And I remember I just – I was like, you know, I think Tyler Jones has a shot at this. Just out of the blue, just said it. I was like, Tyler Jones has been up there pretty, pretty high up there. I'm like, I think, he, I think he has a shot. And lo and behold, he ended up winning the race. And uh, I had actually talked to Tyler and a couple of the other TLR drivers, um, messaged them earlier on in the weekend asking how their stuff was. And he, he just told me, he was like, yeah, my stuff feels really good. I think I, think I could pull out a good, a good finish, you know, if I keep my – keep my head on my shoulders. So I thought that was really cool. And like, like Katie said, um, with Kiara and uh, Miss Bella, I think it's so cool. Their composure on the stand, like they are the most calm, cool, collected drivers and, and they're so smooth and consistent. So yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Hats off to, to Miss Bella and for Kiara too, as well for having a good finish. And, and Tyler, uh, another fun fact about Tyler was, I don't know if any of you caught it, but he, was not there and did not stay for the electric main. So he was in the same boat as a lot of people where he had school the next day. Right. So after winning that pro buggy, he actually had to split and uh, head on out and made the A main and pro E buggy, the single main, which was, of course, way towards the back. I think it was like three or four from the end. So uh, he had to uh, miss out on that. But uh, yeah, little fun fact. I was wondering where he was. I didn't know that. I had no idea. Yeah, so. Yeah, but that's awesome. So uh, another question 
Um, what's the coolest aspect of the PMB to you guys, or what do you feel really sets the PMB apart from other races? I think what sets PMB apart from other races is just all of the extra stuff that they do to really set the atmosphere and kind of make it entertaining and make it more of a show than just a race. They have so many special effects. I mean, they had Joker pictures at the start of the Joker lane, lights at the top of the Joker lane. There are strobe lights, fog everywhere. And I mean, there was freaking dead bodies hanging when you tried to go to pit row. You couldn't go to pit row without walking around those dang dead bodies. So they just do a really good job at putting on a whole show and not just a race. I mean, they are called race time entertainment for a reason, but I think that they just do a really good job at setting the atmosphere of the race. Yeah. For me, obviously it's the same. It's all the, uh, the extra stuff. Obviously Dave is, uh, the owner of paranoia haunted house, um, out of Atlanta or somewhere close by. Um, and so that's what he does. He, he puts, he builds haunted houses and makes them as scary as possible. And he makes, uh, he puts on RC races and makes those as scary as possible. I love how all the monsters are walking around the pits and walking up on someone as they're wrenching on their car, scaring the ever loving out of them. And, uh, you know, but for me, you know, being a professional and putting on a million races in my time. The, the, the thing that stands out more so than any of it is the, is the professionalism and the preparation. And what I mean by that is there's a lot of times we go to races where they're still hammering pipes in, you know, when it's time to practice or, you know, you know stuff is halfway done. Um, you can always count on going to a race time entertainment race and showing up, you know, on Thursday when they open the doors and the track's done, the pipe's in. The music's going, the lights are going, the driver stands up, the banners are hung up. I mean, everything is done when you walk in and there's no construction or no setup going on. And that is hard to do. Trust me, I've done it. Um, I've been late. I've been early. I've done it all. And, and, and he always seems to have everything done when we get there. And then on a personal note, as far as timing and scoring, the race time events are the only races that I've ever, that I ever go to where I don't even have to bring my computer. Usually I use my computer for everything, but Dave and Jacob have bought everything they need. Um, they have everything in place, primary computer, backup computer, extra loops for Joker lanes. And literally I showed up on Thursday night after driving 200 miles from Nashville and I walked into timing and scoring and literally picked up the mic. That was it. I didn't bring anything with me. Everything was ready. Um, obviously I had to input all the names uh, took me roughly 12 hours on Friday from start to finish, sitting there in the chair, taking breaks for, you know, food and for whatnot. And, and uh, but talk about preparation and the race time crew has that covered. So this kind of bounces off that question as well. And I think Jimmy might be able to answer this question a little bit better. But um, do you feel that the PMB compares to other major races on the West Coast, like DNC or Silver State? And if not, what do you feel like is missing? It's funny that you asked this, and I got I to gotta, uh, tread lightly because uh, both Dave and, and Joey are my boys, and I work for both of them. But, you know, I got an honest opinion about it, and, and we actually talked this weekend about it. And, you know, there's no secret, you know, basically – 
the race time events or this particular race time event gets more people than any but than any other race but it's more of the privateer um the east coast races people travel far and wide the west coast races people don't like to travel that far um you know but joey has a bigger name in the industry he's been doing it longer he's out on the west coast where most of the pro drivers reside so for whatever reason joey's races draw the bigger pro turnouts um dave's races draw the bigger privateer turnouts um so they both have equal skills and you know and putting on races obviously uh bobby does all the tracks for dave joey does all the tracks for his events and um i enjoy doing you know doing both of them um but i would have to say they both feel i mean you get more pros at dnc or silver state so it feels more prestigious because you get the international guys coming over and pretty much everybody that's anybody is there obviously at dave's races you have you know your your share of pro drivers you get five six seven ten pro drivers you don't get every single one of them and i just think it's not as well known i think everybody knows of it but it's always way out in tennessee and so for the most people you know they're like you know that's a little too far or or what have you although it doesn't really make sense with the pros but it might be something to do with the team managers or the team selecting certain races that they go to and uh but i do see it you know you know catching up i guess with the west coast races because i do see more and more pros um attending uh dave's races and of course you know you know with the broadcast on live rc which is solely done by jacob and dave um the, their coverage is fantastic um so i don't know i like both of them they both have their you know their their pros and cons but uh i think you know, going to Dave's race is, is, is quite the experience and going to Joey's race is quite the experience as well. So you really can't go wrong with either one of them. Awesome. Okay. And then I think the last question really that we want to touch on was the rocket cars, obviously was a huge part of the PMB this year. And it's been a big part of it in the years in the past, but they brought it back this year. So did you guys watch those and what were your thoughts on the rocket cars? Yeah, the rocket car launch was definitely a one-of-a-kind experience because I've been going to PNB for maybe three, four, I don't know, maybe even five years because I can remember my first year going to PNB. I only had an e-buggy and I had worked on my car the entire day and then tried to go out there for my first qualifier and finally figured out that I had put my diff in backwards. So I think it was Lance that was announcing my race and he said, okay, Katie, go, you're allowed to start. And, you know, one wheels were spinning forward and one wheels were spinning backward. So I couldn't go anywhere. So I think I was in like the G main of sportsman that year. So that shows you how far I've come in RC racing. But yeah, anyways, the rocket car launch, I had never seen before in all my years of going to PNB. I know they have done it in years past, but it was definitely a cool experience. Um, the sword car was super impressive because the sword car went off the ramp and then landed so good that they could turn around and send it again. I was like, what? This is crazy. They're, they're working enough that they can turn around and go again. I think the next time they did break, 
But then um, Adam Drake sent his chuggy over there. That was cool. But then he broke and tried to send it again, and it just didn't work out. So that was funny. And then the techno guys obviously are very hard to beat because they seem like they have been working on this project for forever. They had it down to a science. I don't know what the exact rules of the competition were, but I think that you had to be able to light the rocket by remote control, like not with your hand. Something had to turn the rocket on on the car. And when they sent it, man, it was so high in the air and went so, so, so far away from us on the ground. It was crazy. So obviously the techno guys killed it. But again, they sound like they had been working on it forever. But the rocket car launch is yet again just another way that PNB tries to take the racing experience to a different level and kind of give you something different that you're not used to seeing before. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, this year, I mean, I've seen them before because I've been doing the PNB um, for many, many years, uh, you know, with Lance and others. And so um, this year I brought, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I brought my, my, uh, my buddy with me, Sean, to help announce. And of course he had never been there before to see any of it, the PMB or anything. So when it came time for rocket car, um, I saw him dancing around in the booth because I know him very well. And I know exactly he was really antsy, but he didn't, he wanted to be professional and he didn't want to say anything. And I finally took the mic and I said, go. Go watch the rocket car. I know that's what you want to do. I'll take over from here. I go, I've seen it before. And I go, I know there'll be a million videos posted, which of course there were. So I got to see everything <laughs> via video after the fact. But uh, I was inside and I was announcing. And, uh, you know, but, you know, I, I remember the days I still have videos on my phone from when, you know, from when Adam, you know, used to do it several years back. And, and uh, it definitely was impressive, especially the two-man operation where, Joe was actually driving the car and Tebow was the rocket launcher with another remote standing right next to him. So they had to work in harmony to get that thing going. And they could have gone so much more. That thing should have gone up even higher because the rocket, when it took off, it went straight up. And I don't know what happened if, 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 if Joe hit the brakes or if because of the thrust of the rocket, it brought the front end down. But as soon as the front end came down, it started coming down. But it had enough to keep going way way up there and a lot farther so uh, i actually think it could be top next year with a little bit of uh innovative work and design to try to get the balance right where the rockets are maybe add weight or take weight off or something to that effect but uh once again like katie says another race time uh innovation and you just don't see that very often and even though it's only 30 minutes out of the day you know looking at the video you see that whole hillside just full of people and it's uh, a little bit more bang for your buck at the Psycho Nitro Blast. Awesome. Well, thank y'all for talking a little bit about PMB. I wish I could have been there, like I said, but it's fun to hear like both of y'all's perspectives on the how the weekend went and how the overall um, overall weekend race weekend went. Yeah, the last thing that we want to do before we go ahead and end this PMB segment is we actually want to play the track recordings that we got from the track. There were a lot of people who had some thoughts and opinions on what their strategy was to use the Joker lane during the race. So we're going to go ahead and take a break and take a minute to listen to those now. Okay, hi everybody. This is the Egan <laughs> uh, about the Joker line. So all I know is... 
uh, you either pass it or you go through, you gain 10 seconds or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is all. This is from a novice. So, woo! Hey guys, so my name is James Calhoun. I'm from around Atlanta, Georgia. And on the Joker Lane, I actually ended up going in the main after every pit stop. That way I didn't lose too much time due to the pit stop and I could go out of the pit lane full speed and just go straight into the speed, uh, sweeper. Hi, this is Ryan Lutz and my strategy for the Joker Lane and Truggy was since I started out front just to take the first three laps, get a good lead and not look back. And then in Buggy, I made a mistake on the first lap. Uh, I still took the Joker Lane the first time with the guys, but the second time through I noticed that there was a big gap behind us and so I decided to hold the other two and I was going to use them on my pit exits to kind of save me from slowing down and exiting pit lane too much. I could just shoot off pit lane and keep going. And that's what my strategy was. Unfortunately, I ran out of gas and didn't get to use it, but it was going to get good. Hey, my name is Blake Crow, and uh, my strategy for the jerker lane is to just use them all at one time so you can get far out ahead of uh, all the other racers racing with you. And yeah, that's, that's pretty much my strategy. Hey, my name is Evan Vale, and my strategy for the Joker Lane is to uh, kind of wait until I'm behind some uh, some competitors ahead of me, and I know they'll be kind of hard to pass, so I'll go ahead and use it. That way, I'll be able to drive my own race by myself for a little while until they use it. So that's it. Hi, I'm Josh Rium from Canada, and uh, either way you look at it, the Joker Lane, you get to do it once. So whether it's at the end or the start. To me, it didn't really matter. I usually did it within the first two or three laps. Um, either way, you're going to get that few seconds advantage at some point, so you might as well get her done. Hi, my name's Dennis Mabel. I'm also from Canada. Uh, the joke lane was good if you were stuck in a group of cars and you wanted to get by, like away from them, because you picked up about seven seconds and then you could you had a clear track of Freddy. All right, this is Kat Ascot. My strategy for the Joker lane is if I had a really bad turn on the wall or I needed to get away from somebody that was bumping me, then I was going down the Joker lane. My name is Ryan Millington, and my strategy for the Joker lane is hit it the first lap. Hello, hashtag race like a girl. So my name is Will Alameda, and I've been racing Truggy, Short Course, and Electric Buggy. So my strategy for the Joker lane has been a kind of random strategy because I'm basing it off of how close am I to traffic in front of me and how far away am I from traffic behind me. So if I got a lot of traffic in front of me, that Joker lane cuts out about six to seven seconds for me on average. And if I can just scoot right on past him and go straight into the long sweeper on the left-hand side there, that's what I'm going to do. But if I have a lot of traffic behind me and they're creeping up on me and I get a little bit of anxiety, I take it just to get them away from me and then I got kind of a cool head and I can get back into my rhythm. So I think that was my strategy for that joker lane. My name is Cameron Saxon and my strategy for the joker lane is to take two at the beginning of the race and one at the end. Hi, I'm Derek Harris. I'm a Team Techno and Team Proline driver. Uh, this weekend I drove Pro E-Buggy and E-Truggy. Uh, my strategy on the joker lane was to find a way to take it 
where you'd stay clean, you know, stay out of trouble from people coming out of the mongrels and stay out of trouble just with cars that are taken in front of you. Once I learned out you can take it full speed, the lane was a lot faster for me and uh, it led to actually some position changes on the track. Whether you take it early or not, I think it's all a wash, but it's just all about getting in and out clean. So as you can see, we got a bunch of different perspectives on the Joker lane. One of them was Ryan Lutz, and he actually had two different strategies um, for his Truggy versus his Buggy. His Truggy, he just wanted to take them all right off the bat, use all of his Joker lanes at the beginning, and get a good lead. But then in Buggy, he wanted to take them on his pit exit laps so that he could go straight out of the pits instead of turning right and having to go off that jump. There were some guys who said it just didn't matter at all because you were gaining about seven seconds or really about five if you're a pro, seven if you're opener sportsman, um, and you're getting that time back regardless of if you take it at the beginning or you take it at the end. And then I thought our novice driver was pretty funny, Angela. She hasn't been racing for that long, so it was funny to hear her talk about the Joker Lane and her perspective on the Joker Lane. But again, it was about 50-50 whether people thought that they were going to use them during their pit exit laps or whether they were going to use them at the beginning or just a normal lap taking the joker lane. And what I thought was really interesting about that is I just don't feel like it's the same because if you're coming out of pit row, you cannot get your miles per hour up to speed just exiting the pits and going straight into the sweeper as much as I feel like you can get your miles per hours up when you come around the first corner and you go straight into that joker lane and you have all of the straightaway now to get your um speed up actually I was just gonna say that me and Jacob Peterson um from Race Time Entertainment we had this discussion and we both agreed that the best thing to do was to come out of the, the sweeper before stage or where staging was, go full throttle down the straightaway, full throttle over the hump, full throttle under the joker lane, and then into the sweeper. That was what's going to save you the most amount of time. And I, I'm pretty surprised that most people didn't figure that out because if you use it coming out of pit lane, yeah, you can just go full throttle straight, but you're also leaving pit lane relatively slower. It's not like you're getting a ton of grip on the pit lane itself. So why not turn and go over that double while you're already coming slow? Um, you know, and then basically then you still had to slow down coming into pit lane as well to make your stop before leaving pit lane a little bit slower and then using the, 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 the joker lane. I know that some people forgot to use it in qualifying. So maybe that was one way that people remembered was just go straight out of pit lane. Um, but, you know, we were on the mic, you know, reminding people how many they had but i personally feel the same thing as you the best use for the joker lane would be not out of pit lane didn't really matter first lap or last lap um as long as you were full throttle going through there i feel that's where you would save the most time versus leaving pit lane how do you feel that the joker lane went from like an announcer or race director perspective well i was nervous i'm not gonna lie because you advertise this joker lane. I had never done it. Dave had never done it. Um, I tried to get as educated as I could. And I ba you know, I knew the basics because with the joker lane, you can actually make a lane that's shorter like we had at PMB, or you can make a lane that's longer. It doesn't really matter as long as everybody has to take it at the same 
uh, you know, at the same time. For me, it was a logistical nightmare in timing and scoring because on a normal race weekend, on a normal lap, I have, I have a minimum lap that I can set. So, for example, on a normal track without a joker lane, let's just say let's just say the lap time, the fastest guy in a class is 40 seconds. I generally will set my minimum lap a second and a half to two seconds lower than that, and that's what um, corrects cut you know cut uh, cut track um, people that cut the track. Um, they'll basically self police themselves. So, if I have my minimum lap delay like a second lower than the lap time, and someone cuts three seconds off the lap when they come by the loop that lap's not going to um so with the joker lane i couldn't do that because i had to set the minimum lap for the fastest joker lane lap because if i set it for the regular lap now i believe um i'm not going to blame this on anybody but myself but i believe that lifetime has the option of eliminating uh the joker lane as the fastest lap and i think i saw it but i without knowing exactly what it was going to do i wasn't about to try something on the fly without getting a full education on it so i said okay well i there's one or two people rumbling about track cutting but for the most part everybody goes around the track and they're not no one really wants to win that way um you know if you like to sleep at night that is um so um so yeah i thought it was uh i thought it was good as far as uh you know being able to have strategy you know like if you were coming up on a pack of five cars and you were the sixth one in line you can use the joker lane there. That's probably how I would have used it if I was a racer. I would use it full throttle like we talked about, but I would wait um, until I came up on a pack of cars and then went straight. Now, granted, one or two of those other cars could have also went straight, but at least not all of them generally would have gone straight, and I would have got out of traffic. But uh, I just thought it added a little bit of excitement. I think that the joker lane needed to be a little bit better because there was a risk. Uh, a little bit longer, I should say, because there was a risk of clipping it um, if you just forgot to turn at the end of the straightaway and hit that jump and started tumbling. Um, we had to adjust a few people's times. Um, people got docked a lap. That did it. Um, one guy came out of the mogul section on the other side of it and and got huckety buck on the uh, on the moguls coming out and actually cartwheel you know into the into the loop as well. Um, so it just needed to be its own lane with the, with the actual loop buried right in the center. So there was literally no way for any interference on that Joker lane loop from either of the others, but, but it was the first time it was a learning experience. Me and Dave talked and, and, uh, you know, if, if, and when he chooses to do it again, cause I'm pretty sure it'll be back, not at all of them, but I'm pretty sure it'll be back at one or two of the upcoming race time events. We'll just uh, learn from our previous event and just make it that much better and better. And uh, maybe it'll be become a norm because I, I actually really enjoyed after everything got going and I saw that it was working and and I had to desensitize that particular loop so that it wouldn't pick up a transponder going around the regular track. And once I saw that there was no other interference and that it was working like it was supposed to, I I took a big sigh of relief. And uh, and then the rest of the weekend, we we had fun with it. Yeah, I think the Joker Lane is just yet again another way that the Race Time Entertainment crew takes their races to the next level. It's definitely something that you don't get to experience at every race, so I think it's a cool feature that would be great to be brought back. Thank you to those of you who allowed us to interview you at PMB. We really appreciate it. So the last thing that we're going to do today is play the Finish My Line game. So let's first 
learn about how to play the game. We now bring you the Finish My Line game. The rules of the game are simple. Each contestant will have to finish the line in just one sentence. And now back to Katie to start the game. So now that we know how to play the game, let's get started. The first finish my line question is, the fastest racer that I ever beat was? Brian Tinwald. <laughs> now, it didn't happen very often, but it happened every once in a while, and those were the days. Um, oh, sorry, one sentence. My bad. <laughs> no, it's fine. I'm sure the listeners want to hear, so it's okay. No, we'll let, we'll let Matt go now. Yeah, um... I don't know if I I don't know who the fastest racer I ever beat was. I can tell you who my favorite racer I ever beat was, and that's Brian Lewis, just because he always <laughs> gives me a hard time all the time. But but yeah, I'm not sure who the fastest racer I ever beat was, but my favorite would definitely be Brian Lewis. All right. The thing I noticed about East Coast tracks is wooden jumps. Um, that's the number one thing that I notice about East Coast tracks. Now, granted, I only go to race time events, so that's a kind of a staple. Not at all of them, um, but I guess my secondary answer would be uh, uh, red clay. <laughs> I would probably say um, I think East Coast tracks flow really well. Um, but yeah, if not that, I would say kind of like Jimmy said, the red clay. Okay, similar question. The thing that I noticed the most about West Coast tracks is? Outdoors, hot, cold. <laughs> um, it seems like when we, uh, when we have a big race out here, um, obviously they have different rules in California. We don't see any of the indoor arenas, so all of our races are outdoors. And generally if it's in the summer, it's you know triple digits. If it's in the winter, it's... Uh, you know, you're freezing the whole time. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's uh, the biggest difference uh, I, I would like to see, uh, you know, indoor, indoor nitro racing on the West Coast, but it just, just hasn't happened yet. Well, besides the Silver State, of course. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, I would probably say elevation. There's a, a lot dif of a difference of elevation on tracks in West Coast tracks than East Coast tracks. My favorite track to race at is? Well, Hot Rod Hobbies, of course. I'm going to say that I'm a little, I'm a little impartial. But uh, um, if I had to, if I had to answer this based on my racing days, I would say uh, uh, Intermountain RC Raceway in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, <clears throat> that was always my favorite to go to because it was consistent. They didn't have to do much. It almost, it was almost like planters uh, soil, like you know, like the soil you'd use to plant a garden, um, but hard packed. And it just always stayed good. And, and I've announced a couple races over the last couple of years there. And they're in a new location. And they, they actually transferred the dirt from the old location to the new location. So it actually is still being used. And uh, I think it's awesome. Um, I think if we're talking my favorite track, like, 
uh, to race at locally, I would say SNB RC Speedway, just because that's where I run a lot of club races. But if we're talking like my favorite race, like track, as in like big race, I'd say the Wicked Weekend. Oh my gosh, I would say the same exact answers. We must race at the same tracks or something. That's funny. But Jamie and Nick are literally going to flip out for you saying that. We'll definitely have to tag them in this. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they better to listen to this one. But okay, my favorite potato chip is? Uh, Lay's Sour Cream and Onion by far. (laughs) Wow. Um... (laughs) Uh, yes, I would say Doritos. I don't eat a lot of potato chips. You're missing out. <laughs> yeah, you really are missing out. Cheetos are the best. All right, so anyways, this next one in our game is a good one. The most irritating thing about RC is... Are we allowed to name a person? <laughs> <laughs> you answer however you want to answer. That's fine with me. Just what finish was the question. The, the most, the most irritating thing about RC. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would probably say the drama. Um, I can actually include social media in all of that. Um, um, obviously, social media for me is a blessing and a curse because it gives me an, an avenue to promote my events and and keep track of uh, you know what's going on. Um, but it also gives everybody else an added an, an avenue to you know, vent um, their frustrations and talk smack, you know, another driver, uh, a particular event, a particular race director, um, you know, whatever the case may be. So I think we'd be better off kind of without uh, social media. We wouldn't get as much advertising or be able to keep up with uh, what's going on. But uh, back in my day, when you had a bad race, the only people that would hear about it are the person are the people that are pitted to the left and the right of you. And then a few, a few hours would go by and then it would be just a memory. Now people are typing about it on social media as they're walking out to turn Marshall. So it's quite the different world nowadays. Yeah. I think Jimmy hit it right on the head. I, I would have said the same thing, probably the negativity on social media. The biggest advancement in RC racing is, so this may be a little bit easier for Jimmy to answer than Mackenzie, but... I'll let Jimmy answer this one. Well, of course, you know, brushless motors, uh, LiPo batteries for the electric cars, um, nitro cars, obviously they've evolved. The, the uh, engines and the cars have evolved. Um, obviously, the, the, what did you see on everybody's... What did you see on everybody's, uh, um, you know, head at PMB? those radios like in my day you would never see that so i think that's probably one of the biggest uh, is is having you know being able to communicate with your pit man now so i would say those things the lipo batteries brushless motors make everything more efficient and then the communication possibilities that are there now that's a really good one that is a good one all right the future of the hobby is the future of the hobby is the children um, what I mean by that is we need to get more people involved, more younger people involved or older people. Actually, it's not just the children, but, uh, without new people coming in, we're never going to survive. And so that's going to basically tie into, in my opinion, others disagree with me, but, uh, feel a lot of the, the negativity is what, uh, deters people from coming in. Um, in other words, if I was thinking about getting into RC and my buddy's like, yeah, go on 
do social media and there's all sorts of sites and pages. And I went on and I saw one, um, one little bickering or this, that, or the other, you know, it probably turned me off a little bit, you know? So, um, so yeah, that would be, uh, that would be it. Getting new people involved, um, keep supporting your local racetracks and hobby shops. Obviously, um, you have internet sales, which I think are necessary, um, for people in the middle of nowhere. Um, I have a couple, um, I own a hobby store and I have a couple online stores that sponsor my series. And, uh, you know, everybody always asks me why. And I said, well, if you live in the middle of, you know, Podunk, Montana or somewhere where there's no shop, you know, you need to have somewhere to get your stuff and have it delivered. So I'm all for it, but I'm a big advocate, huge advocate in supporting your local hobby shop. Um, a lot of them are closing down around the country. If you have a local hobby shop, that's where you need to buy your stuff because most shops, including mine, we all match online prices. So it's really a no-brainer at that point. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, just keep supporting the shops and the tracks and keep racing. And uh, hopefully it, it gets even bigger than it is now. Yeah, I think I agree with Jimmy, too. I think the future of the hobby is, I would say, probably like the up-and-coming younger drivers because I, I mean obviously we all know about the the big name drivers that have made a name for themselves in this but I think there's a lot of up-and-coming younger drivers that are coming into this and I think they can they can make a huge impact on the future of RC my favorite subject in school was history oh my gosh history was so yesterday mine would be English or literature oh my gosh you guys are killing me I'm a big history freak, a big U.S. history freak, and uh, I like anything museums or history or or any of that sort. So that's a that's an easy one for me. I was never good at history, so I can't I can't <laughs> relate. <laughs> I'm obsessed with the Civil War, but that's about it. So I'll go to Gettysburg with you if you'd like. <laughs> okay, the next up and coming driver is. Mm. Oh, wow. There's a lot of them. Uh, obviously, you got Miss Bella starting off way early. Of course, we already talked about Tyler Jones. There's a lot of East Coast racers, you know, Jackson Brunson, um, a lot of West Coast racers, you know, Anthony Westergaard, um, Cole Jensen out here, uh, Dean and Jack Rock. Um, I know these are a lot of people that you, you guys don't know, um, but uh, um, Southern California is littered with, with potential um, if these guys can stick with it, the uh, sky's the limit. Carlos Arredondo, he was out there at PMB making his first trip out there, trying to get out uh, to some of the bigger races. Um, he made, uh, I believe, one of the two pro buggy, or I think he made pro truggy main. Um, so, yeah, those are those are some of the the notables for me. Yeah, um, I mean, there's a there's a few that come to my mind. I think up and coming is kind of a hard. It's hard to really like point out who who's already there and then who's up and coming but obviously after this past weekend I'd say Tyler Jones is definitely a threat to be reckoned with um I think obviously I think he's already made a bit of a name for himself but I would say like Evan Vale or the Evan Vales the Blake Pickett's um Austin Woodyard a couple of our east coast guys they've already made a pretty big name for themselves on the east coast but I think they uh they definitely have a lot of potential too to keep to keep growing so those would be my picks. Okay, this one's an interesting question. The fastest drivers live in? Well, California, of course. 
Oh, I knew you were going to say that. California. Well, I was going to say California. Well, yeah, that's, that's kind of a, you know, like if, if you're talking the fastest drivers, like as a whole, um, you know, it's, it's actually fact, not, not every fast driver, obviously you got Lutz and Bornhorst from Ohio. Um, even though Tebow was born and raised in California, he's in Missouri, um, super fast guys in Florida, all along the East coast, there's fast guys. But if you're talking the most fast guys in a, in a, in one state, that's uh, that would have to be California for sure. Yep. I, I was going to say the same thing, California. I mean, it's true, but (laughs) I really want to see the East Coast guys battle the Texas guys because I feel like we cross them all the time, and I feel like it'd be really close if we took our best of the best and their best of the best to see who would beat each other. But anyways, all right, next one. One place that I want to go to that I've never been is? Ooh, actually, I think (laughs) I covered... I think I covered a lot. Are we talking just at any place in general? Yeah, it doesn't have to be RC, but it can be. Well, obviously, being a history buff, I came out two days early to PMB, and I crossed off about four or five things on the bucket list. Graceland we went to, Civil Rights National Civil Rights Museum, Country Music Hall of Fame, and the Grand Old Opry. I got in all four of those in two days, so I'm pretty happy. Um, but there's other places, you know, that I want to go to. I've never been to New York. I've always wanted to go to New York. And of course, I've never been to uh, Washington, D.C. I want to see all the monuments and stuff there. So those are probably two places that I have to get to that are on my bucket list. Yeah, if we're talking um, outside of RC, I would probably agree with Jimmy. Uh, New York City would be really cool. Um I think that would be where I would say outside of RC. If we're talking uh, one place I want to go in RC would be I would really want to attend the DNC race. So that would be that would be one place I'd want to go in my racing career, I guess. All right. Our last question in the Finish My Line game show is the next 10th scale world champion is. Jared Tebow. Uh, I'm going to go ahead. Go ahead. I I was going to say, I feel that he's been resurrected. It's either Tebow. I mean, Mayfield obviously won the last, uh, well, both two will and four will at the last one, but um, Tebow just won the Reedy race, which is in my opinion, sometimes harder because of the, the 12 main events uh, harder to win than the world championship. And he seems to have a newfound focus and a new, a newfound joy for racing. Um, so I think he's going to be a force to be reckoned with, of course, Mayfield Cavallari, um, and tons of other guys are going to have something to say about that. But if I had to pick one, that's my pick. Yeah. Um, I think I was actually, I know he won it, uh, the last 10 skill, but I was going to say Mayfield. So I guess we kind of have a little bit of similar views, but I think, I think Tebow is definitely up there as well. Like Cavallari. Um, but I think I would probably say Mayfield. Well, that's about it for the game show. We will maybe continue that if our listeners kind of like that segment. Uh, we'll continue that on to the next one. 
And that's about all we got for the podcast as well. So we want to give Jimmy a big, huge shout out. And thank you for coming on the Race Like a Girl podcast with us. I know that your voice has been going for, I don't know, what, 72 straight hours, maybe even more than that. I don't know. But we just really appreciate you taking the time to come on our podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you, ladies. And uh, I appreciate very much uh, you, you asking me. To, uh, to come on as soon as you asked me. It was a no-brainer, of course. Sorry to keep you to you ladies up late. <laughs> um, I know it's, I don't even know what time it is now, but I know it's a lot later for you than it is me. So I appreciate the, the opportunity to get on with you, with you ladies, and uh, I appreciate you staying up late for it. It's totally worth it to talk to one of the greatest legends in RC, to kind of see you go from pro driver to all these other titles that you are series director, race promoter, hobby shop owner, all these other amazing things that you do for the hobby. So thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you a lot, Jimmy. Thank you. Thank you. You guys, uh, well, try to try to enjoy the rest of your night. And uh, I appreciate it. And we'll talk soon. To all of our fans and listeners, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please continue to like our Facebook page or share our podcast on Facebook to be entered into future drawings. And we look forward to giving you another one. Thanks for listening to the Race Like a Girl podcast. Join us again next time for another exciting episode. And be sure to like, share, and follow us on Facebook.